I don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. Would you like to come upstairs for some coffee? No, no, thanks. I can't drink coffee later than that. It keeps me up. <laughs> All right, and here we go. Welcome back to another edition of the Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast. And I've got someone on today who I've wanted to interview for a very long time. I, like, a very long time I've wanted to interview uh, my next guest. And I was trying... Maxwell, before I, before I introduce you by full name, I was trying to get... Just before you came on, I rushed home from work and I had the most brilliant, brilliant idea of getting Steve Layton announcing your name in your competition routine because <laughs> he's just the best. Maxwell Colonna Dashwood. And he's in the intro, which unfortunately you couldn't hear. But of course, when you listen to the edited edition of this podcast, you will hear. But um, let's just start off with, well, hello. thank Hello, Maxwell Colonna Dashwood. And thank you for coming hi, on. Hi, Welcome hi, on. Hi. Do you, do you also love Stephen Layton? Yeah, Steve's a, Steve's an amazing person, and he was there early in the UK scene, doing things uh, way ahead of everyone else on his own. Uh, and he's a force of nature, really, Steve, and you can see that in what he's done. And um, yeah, I mean, he always pronounced my name in a way I was very happy with. So, <laughs> <laughs> with a lot of um, gusto, a lot of yeah. Uh, he's Man, that, I mean, he to be. The thing is, I think he needed to tone it down a little because at World Championships, by the final day, like he couldn't speak. He's, he's all that's in also on day a, one. That's also a KBR. He's doing a great job, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he needs to, I don't know, if you can take some drugs or something to sort out your throat. Well, it, yeah. it could be in reverse. Ross Quayle loses his voice during, you know, while he's announcing. So, you know, it could, it, it, it could be far worse. It could be that bad, yeah. No, Steve, it's, um, it, yeah, he was part of the, the whole sort of character of those. I mean, we'll talk about this in the podcast, but, you know, I think it's good that they the show the competitions are a show they're grandiose they're a spectacle and steve's approach to um commentating and comparing was uh you know really helped the spectacle mm. well enough about steve this is all about maxwell colonna dashwood um i always start the podcast maxwell by introducing the man behind you know the barista that usually people that come on here are uh, of a coffee background usually we had a Last week, I had a professional swimmer on, believe it or not, Olympic gold medalist, Zach Stubletty Cook. But, um, Maxwell, England, you're based in England. Were you born there? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was born on the south coast in a place called the New Forest, which um, yeah, uh, is is not new. Henry VIII uh, created it. So it's several hundred years old. He but, created um, a lot of things between... to suit his own in interest and needs, didn't he? He did, Like yeah, a whole yeah, religion. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll just get rid of that. We'll just change those laws. We'll just kill those kill those wives. Yeah. Right. The um, Southampton uh, were probably the biggest town to me, the biggest city. And so I, I grew up there, but predominantly in the New Forest. And uh, I moved to Bath, where I'm now based, uh, specifically around opening our coffee shop. So It's a beautiful uh, place, Bath. I've seen pictures. Yeah, absolutely. A, a really close friend of mine, um, he's from Melbourne, and he lives here now. And uh, he has a... He has a musical alias called Nightlife with a K, and he's part of uh, Cutter's Records in, um, in in Melbourne. Anyway, his mum really doesn't want him to stay living in England, and every time they're on the phone, she belittles him and says, "Oh, you know, in your little uh, your little uh, playtown, Bath playtown over in uh, England, it looks unreal. It looks like a little movie set, basically." Uh, it's all Georgian architecture. It's, uh, it's the UNESCO World Heritage Site. There's some drawbacks to that. Like it was impossible to open a coffee roaster in Bath because 
you know, you've got to protect all the sandstone and stuff, which is why the roastery is just near Bristol. And Bristol's one of the things I love about Bath. Bath may be pretty and beautiful, but Bristol is super cool and diverse and interesting. And that's only 10 minutes on the train. Yeah, interesting. And Maxwell, one something I find really interesting about you is that you lift some heavy shit. You're a strong guy. You're a, you're a power lifter. <laughs> yeah, well, the funny thing was is... Um, Maybe when I was when I was younger, I sort of used to deny that I was hyper competitive, you know, because um, there's pros and cons to being very competitive. And that now I just own it. I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I, I love it. It's competing. a cool thing to own now. Like, have you seen The Last Dance by the Michael Jordan documentary? Oh, yeah. The guy yeah, yeah. Freak. Being competitive is it's back in, it's yeah. back in. But I'm, I'm not I'm not as competitive as him. <laughs> <laughs> but um basically i took up powerlifting after coffee comps because you know so much of my energy competitively went into these competitions and i stopped them overnight i'm not going to pretend it's like being a you know a formula one driver and they they stop and suddenly they don't know what to do with themselves because the thrill of competition is gone and i was looking for something to funnel it into and one of my regulars at the cafe was a fitness model and he needed someone to train with and i'd, I'd always gone to the gym a little bit and I got down there with these people who took it, you know, as seriously as I take coffee and like into every detail, debating the science and the theories. And I was like, man, this is actually a lot like coffee. <laughs> and um, yeah, I saw some dude down there lifting 300 kilos deadlift. And uh, they say that if you if, if you lift in a gym where people lift heavier, you'll lift heavier because you're, you know, you're inspired to try and catch them up. And then, um, yeah, very quickly, I took part in some competitions and I, I got silver in uh, a British championship in one of the federations uh, at, at a 75 kilo body weight. So you cut, you basically water cut. So you, um, it's pretty horrible. Fighters do it like in boxing and everything uh, to get into a lower weight class so you can be more competitive. Anyway, so I'm well into it. But right now I'm transitioning to strongman competition, which is really strong fun. Strongman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, strongman or strong woman's becoming really popular too. And YouTube's helping with these kind of things. Uh but basically, that's really fun. You pull cars and lift up stones. So I'm 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 really into that right now. You'd you'd get along with my older brother. So my older brother's a um, IFBB competitive bodybuilder and wow, lifts. Um, Mate, that is dedication. That is tough. Well, yeah, he's he's. Uh, if if anyone listening would like to look him up, his name uh, on Instagram is at Mike Pearson. Um, so believe it or not, we are brothers. And I've got another older brother who's not a bodybuilder, but he's like six foot four and built like a, a brick shit house. we say, in uh, Australia. But it kind of leaves me feeling sort of, well, obviously subordinate because I'm like the Danny DeVito <laughs> twins edition of the Pearson boys. Like my brothers are yeah. just both these handsome genetic freaks and, you know, like I don't scrub up so well. You're the, you're the, you're the creator. Can they create what you create though? You know, it's always swings and roundabouts. Uh, Michael's wildly successful. So is Lucas. So I'm literally just. Like, oh, damn, oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> I'm tier one in every category, but you know, he lives some incredibly heavy shit and uh, shout out to him as well. But Maxwell. It's funny, it's funny because it's sort of funny, right? Because it's one of those fields that you look at. I, we might touch on accessibility, but. I've done a bunch of things where I felt intimidation at the beginning. I didn't know anything about them. And you, you then put that back on yourself and you actually get into that world and people are way nicer than you think they are. I mean, powerlifting in particular looks unfriendly, right? It's people shouting and lifting things. Um, but the cool thing is everyone's really there for self development, which I love. And I actually love it competitively more than coffee comps because, because it's so much about self development and you tend to then be happier for someone who, beats you or wins because you, you know it's it's very objective type thing but uh 
basically, I think a lot of those gym monkeys listening to death metal, covered in tattoos, chalk in their face, you know, talcum powder everywhere. They're all like big cuddly teddy bears most of the time. Yeah, I'm going to have to challenge you on this one because when I went to my, I went to one of my brother's competitions earlier this year and uh, I actually surprised him and I, di- I didn't tell him I was coming. I just thought I'll rock up because I, I, I just don't think he thought I was going to come. And um, so I was like backstage with him. We, we hugged and embraced and so I've got this fake tan all over me, of course. And then I actually I actually accidentally stepped into someone's sort of preparation area. So behind... Oh, they stage, had a- behind I don't, I don't know how we get onto this, but, you know, behind uh, backstage when someone's preparing for... Pumping, a they were pumping. They were getting ready for up. the stage, man. And I was in And you got in the way of their pump-up routine. Yeah. I mean, that is, that, is a, that is a faux pas. You don't do that. Anyway, an enormous man, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, he came up and said, this is my space. And, like, right in my face. It's like, this is my space where I exist. I'm a human being. I exist. So, like, my brother won yeah, that. Is, but... My brother won the overall. He's the biggest guy, you know, by 20 kilos at that competition. So... No, I felt, wow. I, I mean, the, but the bodybuilding one is in the bodybuilding one is more comparable to barista comps. So when I started competing in powerlifting, people would we'd be chatting backstage, and you've got loads of time between sets, and um, a bunch of the powerlifters were hit, listening to me talk about barista competitions, and they were like, and I talked about them and the subjectivity and everything, and they were like, "Man, this sounds just like bodybuilding," because the problem in bodybuilding, right, is it's judge subjectivity like who's really got the nicest bicep how do you really define that well, right? this, is, this is exactly right i'm feeling my brother's pain all over again he lost on a pro card so like this is the best competition in australia he came second on a split decision four five and you know it's you know he accepts his loss and whatnot and congratulate the other competitor but you're right it's it's another subject it's, it's, it's harder it's harder to swallow it right like if some dude lifts 20 kilos off the floor more than me like there's no debate it's like okay you're better. And then I just move forward. But when you have that sort of, you know, you're like, okay, is that, was it those judges? Do they prefer something about what they did? But yeah, so there's, so, so I think um, powerlifting and strongman's the most friendly bodybuilding can get a little political um, and quite competitive in a, this is the thing about competition, right? It's one of those um, terms, which it, you can, you can, you can cite the negative side effects of intense competition. And you can also talk about the positives which I think is one of the things barista competitions need to come to terms with is what do we want from competition and what don't we want from competition? And then let's build something around that. Right. Yep. And I totally agree, but we'll get to more of that, that stuff in a moment. What I want to ask you, how did you get into coffee? Oh yeah. Sorry. You don't want to talk about powerlifting. <laughs> this is a coffee podcast. I always go on tangents and you know, uh, some people may have skipped through a couple of minutes, but how did Maxwell get into coffee? Yeah, so no interest in coffee growing up. My my father's a sculptor. Um, my both my father and my mother used to work on the Forestry Commission, which the New Forest is a national park. So you get like a little cottage on the forest in the middle of nowhere, and you you sort of look after the land. And there's different jobs, and yeah, they used to go around on horseback and and sort of look after the forest. Super cool. Um, and then my my dad was always art driven but he didn't he took out a loan in the 70s to make his first ever bronze and he was already 30 at this point and he's pretty unorthodox and sort of entrepreneurial uh and I think that's what I get from him he basically uh he went to Southampton Art School when he was 14 and left after two weeks so he's the youngest person ever to go and then basically told the teachers to fuck off and left uh his parents um back in Southampton had like a a convenience store that they sort of started almost as an inheritance for him he did two weeks 
uh, and it was a cheese incident where he was cutting cheese and he couldn't cut it to exactly the right amount. And this customer got really angry. And on like the sixth slice of cheese, he just said, fuck this and walked out and never worked there again. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, I think I'm, I think I'm better at hospitality than he is, but my, the reason I was sort of giving you his background is I grew up in a really arty background. My, I was probably expected to do something art-based and my first, I guess, real, you know, career profession or whatever was portraiture. So I was quite good at portraiture. Um, I didn't go to university. I went traveling a lot. I, I worked on vineyards in New Zealand. I did the East coast of Oz. Did, I went to China, America, all sorts. And um, I quite enjoyed working in hospitality at the same time to, to make some money to support the artwork. Anyway, I came back to the UK. This would have been oh, 2005. And I got a job in a pub in the forest and I was doing more and more artwork. And I wasn't just doing portraiture. I was doing some sort of big, uh, sort of more abstract pieces, generally all figurative stuff. So people driven on of the like murals on walls and stuff. Anyway, I got super busy. And the thing about portraiture is you can cut, it's, as far as art goes, it's one of the easiest to build a business around, right? Because if I, if I draw you and you're like, man, that looks like me um, or, or your, or your family or someone, you know, like then they recommend and you can, you can build a network doing it. Anyway, I got so busy, I had to give up the hospitality job. And I was like, I was just sat there painting and drawing. And I was like, I don't think I like this. Like, yeah. I, I don't get to spend any time with any people. I think I preferred working in the pub. You see, like, I'm going through a bit of a bit of that myself. I'm not working in coffee at the moment because we're in the middle of a lockdown in Sydney and it's a, you know, everything's just a schmozzle. So I'm a, I'm a forklift driver right now who studies economics, oh, wow. believe it or not. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I drive a forklift by day. I study economics by night and record podcasts by, by even after dark. But, um, there's, there's no, there is no putting you in a box, is there? Oh well, I just, I just, I just miss the thrill of uh, making coffee, I guess. But we'll get yeah, there. yeah, it's, it's sort of. In, well, this is what's interesting, right? Which is, um, I will get there in a minute. For anyone who's skipped, still skipping, I'm still not talking mainly about what I've been asked to talk about. <laughs> so, there's no rules here uh, as well. Yeah, there's no rules. Cool. Um, so I met my wife Leslie, who who was a cuss. She used to ride up to ride on horseback to the pub, drink several pints of Fosters, and ride off. Mm. So I was like, uh, I actually, it's pretty cheesy. I sort of um, offered to, to paint her. Anyway, long story oh. short, we, we, got, we got married within a year and she wanted to go traveling again. And I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I thought, yeah, I can do some more traveling. I hadn't used my Australian work visa. I only used my New Zealand work visa. Yep. And so we got married and we went into six months in India, which was full on, uh, traveled all over and ended up in Melbourne with a work visa. Uh, I had no interest in coffee at this time whatsoever. And we, we got into a, you know, one of those, um, you know, hostels and stuff and we're desperate to find some work. And I, I was walking around the CBD, uh, in the center of Melbourne and I went to a place called Morgan's. And so Morgan's is a polling company in Melbourne. So, uh, basically they poll the public for public opinion. So for example, I'm sure they're doing plenty now asking what, how people feel about aspects of lockdown or whatever. And they had a cafe and a conference center and, I went in and asked if they had a job and they interviewed me on the spot and said, you start tomorrow. I was like, okay, cool. Um, so I went there the next day and it was a really interesting place. Um, uh, but it wasn't a coffee place at all, but I had to make coffee to a, to a standard. It was made very clear to me very quickly. You need to make this like this. And I was like, Oh wow, people really care about coffee. Like this is, this is interesting. And then the first month I just was annoyed at how I couldn't do latte art. You know, I'm like, I'm an artist. <laughs> I should be able to do 
Lot out. Um, and I just, yeah, I talk. You can probably tell I talk. And I like people. And a lot of what I've done is through connecting with other people. And I just, the regulars could see I was interested in it. And I was, still wasn't interested in the flavor. I was interested in the process and the fact people cared about it. Also, something I found weird was, I was like, why is this so nice to make? You know, I've done lots of monotonous jobs and some of them suck. Something about making coffee, I was like, why is this not monotonous? It's interesting enough to keep it stimulating every day, right? And I mean, you're sort of remembering customers' orders, but it was interesting. It was enough complexity to be interesting, but um, repeatable enough at the same time. Anyway, they said to me, you need to go up the road to this place called Brother Baba Boudin. This would have been 2006. And two, two blocks up on my lunch break, I went up there. And my wife, Leslie, was working as a, on the front desk of a finance firm up the road. And we both went up there. And it was like, it was like you know, clearly it looked like a cool hip coffee shop. Uh, and there wasn't really a menu and there was no real sign out the front. And this uh, woman served us and was really friendly. And I said, I wanted an espresso. And she said, oh, you know, do you want to try the single origin coffee? Which I think if she hadn't have asked me, you know, a lot of what I noticed quite quickly was this was under the counter in 2005. Like, I mean, even now a lot, the coffee shops have this problem where most of their customers aren't interested so it's like how do you how do you give the customer who just wants a flat white a flat white and how do you engage with the customers who are super interested to talk about coffee and learn about coffee anyway had this coffee from kenya out on the sidewalk and she said it's going to taste she gave me flavor notes actually which now i ran against but i was like okay this is so weird to me the other shop i was working in it was some italian blend um i hadn't really thought about the way it tastes at all and to be honest, I didn't think I was going to get it because I've been trying to get into whiskey. And I was like, man, whiskey just tastes like fire. Like I, I can taste the smoky stuff. I can taste the peat. And I, I thought, oh, coffee my will be- throat burning, my esophagus just on fire. Yes. Right, exactly. And maybe I was just a bit too young, right? Like I'm definitely better at tasting whiskey now. Anyway, point being is I was super curious and I stood out on that sidewalk and I tasted this espresso. And honestly, like it, it's not over dramatic to say it was like an epiphany i was like this does not taste like any coffee i've been given but more importantly than that i loved the way it tasted and i tasted and i hadn't identified as someone who'd loved coffee before with traditional coffee you can do a test to see if you're a super taster which is a we won't i think it's a an unfair term just because you've got a sensitive mouth doesn't mean you're good at tasting but it, it turns out i'm really sensitive to bitter so it, it's like i hadn't been into traditional coffees and then i come across these sort of like clean complex coffees with loads of interesting flavor anyway i was so taken by this coffee but what i was most taken by was why have i never had it before why have i had to travel around the world work somewhere be told to go down a side street to find this thing right it was super underground and i literally quit my job the next day to go and work full-time as a barista in another shop uh, it was a super busy shop like 40 kilos a week uh, it was it was you know You'd fill up the doser, click, click, bang. All the the most hard thing about that job is there was no dockets or anything. So it was like queues of people all on memory. Um, and again, in the CBD, so it wasn't really coffee driven. Anyway, so I, but I knew I needed to get more, more experience being a barista before I could work with interesting coffee. And I said to myself, I'm going to spend the whole year I'm here. This was about three months in. I'm just going to soak up everything I can about coffee. I'm going to spend the weekends going to um roasteries in the suburbs and go try and go to the best coffee shops i started going on barista courses uh which um 
I, I quite quickly I didn't like I'd only been in it like several months and I was like man the what they're telling me is the way to make coffee just doesn't seem to work all the time like there was lots of questions and someone said oh you should go and train with David Macon who was the Australian barista champion at the time and he was working for Veneziano and they had a store down in Richmond uh in 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 Melbourne and I went there and he was he gave me like three four hours of his time and he was the first person to not say hey man you just make it like this he was the first person to go well we all do this but actually we're not sure about this and we need you know we're not really sure how this works or that works and that's just an average and I was like oh this is even more interesting than I thought it was he's a very straight shooter Dave Macon he tells it how it is yeah exactly right and um, that was refreshing to me because you know, uh, I really don't like smoke and mirrors and stuff. Anyway, he was awesome. And I didn't actually get a job in a great coffee shop. What I did was I'd go and buy, I got a job in busy coffee shops in the CBD and I would buy good coffee at the weekends. I'd stay late and ask the owners if I could use the machine and play with the machine and the coffee on my own time. Uh, and I'm always a bit of a self-learner. Like I feel like if you go and do apprenticeships with other people, there's some real value there, but you only get one way of, you only see one way of doing things. And so I I decided to just like soak it all up, go on all the courses, read all the blogs. I mean, there wasn't the same content out like there is now in coffee. Then it was a bit harder. You know, there's only a few books. I think Scott Rayo had done like one book or two books and there was the Scoma book from the, I think that's from the nineties or something uh, in, in America. Speaking anyway. of books, I'll, I'll just quickly interrupt you. You've got one in partnership with someone else we've had on this podcast, which is Christopher Hendon. So you've got the yeah. Water for Coffee book. You, and- you have to say Christopher H. Hendon. He gets quite annoyed if you miss out the H. Christopher H. Hendon. The, you know, the, the funniest thing about Christopher Hendon is that his, his mom is actually cooler than him. Uh, his mom is so oh. cool. She's taken over the celebrity of uh, Australian coffee from Chris. Oh, she's she's a star. But please continue on what you're saying. Yeah, no worries. It's a, it's sort of interesting. I it, it seems like it sort of seems like yesterday, but such a long time ago. At the same time, so we were going to stay in Melbourne and open a shop in Melbourne because what I saw, which excited me, was people seemed afraid to present how interesting coffee was to customers everywhere around the world, and it's because I now think it's because. It, most cafes need a one mile radius customer base, which means if you work or live near that cafe, that's where you go. Right. And there is a geographical problem with cafes, which is, do you go to the best cafe or do you go to the best cafe within a geographical distance that you can get to within the half hour lunch break you have? Or See, I drive I mean? into, I drive into state for good coffee because I'm a freak, but yeah, you, the nor- yeah, you're, you're, a you normal know. person might, um, you know. yeah, unfortunately you couldn't run a successful business just off your trade. I'm afraid, but <laughs> It's, but, but, I, but yeah, the thing is, um, these coffee shops are funny because they're trying to appeal to a large audience, but they're trying to be specialist at the same time. And anyway, my idea was I loved hospitality and I loved service and I like the psychology of it. How do you design a space? How do you determine expectation by the way the shop looks, by the way your staff are? And I was like, look, I'd like to open a shop that is unapologetically um, showcasing this side of coffee, right? Uh, but my wife's mum wasn't very well, so we had to come back to the UK. So we didn't stay. And this, we came back to the UK in 2007. Uh, so we did 2006 in Melbourne, back in 2007. Square Mile had just opened in the UK. Uh, has been going, obviously. A couple of other roasters were doing some stuff, like Origin Roasters. And we started an events business, um, naively thinking the going around and serving coffee at music festivals and tractor shows would be easier than opening a shop. 
<laughs> it's not. Mm. It's, it's not at all. You've got to pay your pitch fee like a year before. So like if you're going to do Glastonbury and spend three grand on a pitch, you have to pay that in November the year before. Anyway, we not did it. On barista we, wages, that's not the easiest thing to do, is it? Exactly right. Yeah, and the, the, I think the 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 challenge for me was again the audience. And whenever you're doing anything, whatever project you have, one of your hardest challenges is finding your tribe and your audience, finding the people who love what you're trying to do. And you know, if you do anything boutique or specialist, that's one of your biggest challenges. Like, of course, you've got to make something awesome, right? You've got to make something that's as perfect as you think it can be based on what you know today. I'm, but, I'm just thinking right now, I'm sorry, but if it's Zach Glastonbury, have you got people that like, they're going and doing a key in a mosh pit with, you know, listening to Dizzy Rascal, then they come get a double espresso and then go do it all over again, listening to Florence and the Machine. Is that what it was like? It was exactly like that, which for, which for, <laughs> which for someone like me, who's really serious at coffee, right? And I'm like, there's these, people are off their faces it's not bad business like we had 30 40 foot queues through the night till 6 7 a.m right through but yeah i think this dude turns up we were at a global gathering which is like a dance festival and it was like 6 a.m i've been working all night and this dude turns up and he is you know he is off his face he's taken so many drugs he doesn't know which way is up and he's just raiding our sugar stand and he, he just eats all the sugar right and then he goes to looks at me and he goes, you got any more sugar? I was like, no, I haven't got any more sugar. You've had all my sugar. Yeah, you just leave. Right. <laughs> uh, and I remember thinking, I turned to Leslie, my wife, and I was like, I don't know if events like this are the perfect platform for what we want to do with coffee. Yeah. No. So, <laughs> so uh, we basically said, let's find a shop and let's create a destination shop. And, and like you saying that you'll drive interstate for a great coffee, uh, we were basically saying, let's do that somewhere in the UK. Let's find somewhere, open a store, keep the rent cheap, we'll live cheaply, and we'll build a build something interesting, like a destination store. That's Glonor and Smalls in Bath, which we opened in 2009. We sold the events business off um, for, you know, it, it was good enough to, we made enough from it to start the shop. And we got this tiny shop with five seats in Bath, which had um, f- basically free accommodation above. You got to live in a, a flat above the shop and rent the shop in the middle of Bath all for 10 grand a year, 10,000 pounds a year, Jesus which is good. super, super. Yeah. So I was like, this can't really fail. And then uh, we sort of, the, the beginning was tough. Like people are like, what are you doing? What, like why, you know, they just didn't get it. Uh, this was 12 years ago in the UK. Um, and the coffee scenes evolved quick in, in the UK. We're quite good at, I feel like UK culture is quite good at, taking things and running with them quickly but back then people were like what do you mean it's just a cup of coffee so it was the opposite challenge to melbourne my what i thought the challenge in australia was was people really cared about coffee right and people are like i know about good coffee as a customer and that's great because they care but it's also a challenge because they have predefined ideas of what coffee should be right in the uk your challenge was completely different you were going hey actually just take a minute this thing's more interesting than you think it is what's good is when you could show people it was interesting suddenly they were like oh this is super cool they went from being not on side to really on side um anyway so the shop and then i started doing barista competitions and i i firmly believe if you create something interesting interesting people come to you right you'll 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 find them and like chris was just a customer in the shop uh the christopher h hendon sorry yeah get it right (laughs) 
Yeah, get it right. Yeah. Um, all sorts of interesting people that I met through that shop. And I used the shop for the first six years really as a as a as a base for my interest. Like, you know, I've clearly realized now I'm very entrepreneurial. I like projects. I'm interested in doing lots of interesting things at once. And that's one of my challenges, you know. You can't do all the things at the same time. You have to say no to some stuff. You have to focus on other stuff. Uh, did the barista competitions. They were they were amazing for me. Um, the platform it gave me, and I really did use them as a platform. Even early, I was like more interested in the engagement and the platform than I was in the score sheet and just figuring out how to win. Uh, did all that. Loads of scientific research and collaboration came off the back of that platform. Uh, and then we started the Coffee Roastery 2015. Uh, I could go on about why we started that. I tend to only want to start something. What interests me is seeing an area of value that isn't really being explored. And that excites me. And I'm like, why? Uh, that that should be. And then figuring out how to create a business that does it. Um, and so that's what I was doing with the roastery, focusing more on rare coffees or interesting coffees, because I felt the whole market was pretty tightly priced around wholesale coffee. Uh, you again you can only buy coffee for the customer base you have that will buy that coffee right it, um so yeah and then uh yeah there here i am today i've sort of spent the last three or four years much more focused on the businesses um part of the reason i created the youtube channel was i missed the industry conversation so uh that i was getting through going to events being involved in competitions uh and so well, well, sort of well let's talk about that video because this is this is the main reason why i brought you on on the podcast and uh, we're, we're, we're getting into the juicy end now and to be honest maxwell when i when i watched it i thought geez he's taken the gloves well and truly off and he's just boxing on quite um quite honest and and to be honest i, I think we need a bit more of this in coffee a bit more sort of robust debate not not abuse but ro- and i'm not no, saying i that, think not i'm not saying that was you in any way but uh to challenge things because we're we're in specialty coffee, in my opinion, is still very much in its infancy. We, we the, we've still got so much further to go. When you look at when you compare us to something like wine, yeah, or we've food. Got, yeah, man, we've um, it's like growing up, right? Like um, some responsibility comes with growing up, and some of it's hard and some of it's not fun. But it's like you know, I I agree a hundred percent with what you just said, and the way I the way I frame it is I think the coffee industry is full of a bunch of super well-meaning people on the whole who love this thing and there's a lot of positivity but sometimes to a fault where it's just like oh man we're, we're all in specialty coffee what, what we all must be doing a good thing right and there isn't enough critique there and then you and actually I didn't start that channel at all to moan about barista competitions some of the things that really got me was the sustain the transparency around some of the claims that people make in coffee like there's no auditing in coffee no verification and part of the issue there is independent business because although independent business is brilliant it's also problematic right if if i you know, there is very little incentive or recourse for an independent business from an auditing point of view like if if i open my shop in bath and i paint the front a different color i'm supposed to get planning right I but if so. I, don't, I don't know what the municipal regu- regulations are. Is, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's, they're really funny, but it's all heritage buildings and, you know. But but the thing is, you know, you know, you won't be held to account as a min- small indie business. But if you're Starbucks, they'll shut you down and fine you, right? And I just find specialty coffee so interesting is that it's so, it can sometimes, it can be very pious and it can be very like, we do things the best. Starbucks and everyone else suck. And you're sort of like, okay, like 
some when we get to some of these like difficult things about doing business about hr about supply chains like they're doing way more than you're doing mm. right and um i'm not saying that i just i just think some of that conversations may be missing a little bit and i've seen it uh missing and uh the funny thing is i wanted to cover a few things on that youtube channel but generally people just want me to do controversial topics now <laughs> okay well i mean you're doing a great job because here we are but we're going we're, we're on to brewster competitions and it like most things, it is a flawed competition, but I'll start out by acknowledging it's a volunteer-run thing, and I, I know you have opinions on this, but uh, you know, I appreciate, and I'm sure you do as well, and everyone listening appreciates that people, and like you said, they're well-intentioned, they're putting a lot of time and effort in and uh, to, 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 uh, to even have these competitions running and then organising the sponsors. It's a hard thing to do, and we need to acknowledge their hard work, but there's probably some things we could do better. Um, and and I think I think one of them is obviously a lot of it is subjective and there's no real clear way to win. And I've just got a quote, um, I've got a quote here I'm going to play of yours, Max, Maxwell. You, you, you might not be able to hear it, but it goes, only goes for a few seconds for the listeners. Here you go. Competitions to actually work, you have to have clear rules uh, that you play the game by. Okay? And there isn't. They're all over the place. All right, clear rules, there isn't in competitions, they're all over the place, was the quote. Um, please explain, Maxwell. Yeah, well, the, the, the thing is, when I, I got into it, I was probably a bit naive, and I believed you're presented by the organisation uh, with a structured, rule-driven game, a competition that has these clear rules, uh, and if you understand those uh, as a competitor, you'll score well or less well if you're unable to deliver a routine that hits those rules. I just, just I just think that's a lie. I just it it it's sort of it's just not true at all. Um, and again, I think when I got through to the the position on the board, the evolutionary group, I can't remember the exact name of the group. There was an acknowledgement at a world level that yeah, it just doesn't work. I mean. I got a message yesterday from a barista at the French barista championships who was like um, the, the winner or something or someone who did very well. There's a clear rule about using all of your espresso in the signature drink and they didn't. And someone made a complaint to the judges and the head judge said, Oh yeah, well I don't like that rule. So I didn't follow it. Right. Oh, so a bit of uh, selectivity so, in the, uh, in, in well, there's the- that. Yeah. The, I guess that's the problem, right? Which is let's just break this up into two things. Let's imagine that judge did follow the rules and didn't just blatantly ignore them. If you got several judges in a room and you asked them to tell you how all the rules worked, they couldn't tell you. I, I was at the London Coffee Festival, um, another judge. Uh, a lot of people have reached out to me saying how refreshing it was to see the video. Lots of judges, people who judge for years. One, one's judged for 20 years, done world finals. Some people judged for two years and left. And I just asked them questions like, okay. Uh, and this had come off the back of... Um, the one person I've been debating it heavily with is Dale Harris, who's defending it. Um, who's, uh, who, who's also been on this podcast, and uh, shout out to Dale. I like the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's wrong about Brister comps. But yeah, okay. the, um, the <laughs> wait. All right, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to pull. I'm gonna have to take the gloves off here myself. Could it be that he won and you didn't? Well, this is the bias. So um, both of us are biased. So if you've won, you are biased to support the competition, to support your achievement as a world Brister champion. 
And if uh, you haven't won, like I didn't, I mean, I did very well, but I didn't ultimately win, then you can argue I'm biased because uh, I'm just pissed off that I never got to be World British Champion. So this is the problem with the debate, though, which is uh, everything turns into a straw man argument. I don't know if you're familiar with the term straw man. It's this idea that we're not having a logical conversation about the topic. You're just critiquing my character and I'm critiquing yours. It's like a child playground, right? Well, it's kind of like I argue with my brother all the time about whether Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time or LeBron James is. He's on the LeBron James side, which I think is just fanciful. But yeah, I I, I totally get what you're saying. A straw man man argument. Yeah, and um, and I'm aware, and that's what I, I always found highly frustrating as a competitor, is I knew I was in a weak position to challenge anything because I'd be called out as poor sportsmanship or sour grapes, right? Well, there was times in that video um, where I thought, oh, fuck, he's going pretty hard here. But I do agree. You do agree with? Your video and the contents of it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's what's quite refreshing to me because I've clearly managed to... What I try to do um, it, it is is be aware of, you know, not to have strong opinions too quickly, to try and gather the information. And I put many years into that competition. Yes, you could still say I'm sour grapes because I never won, but... I did the national coordinator role. I was involved at the world level. Um, I've been involved with lots of competitors and coaching. And it's almost like, well, if I can't talk about the challenges of it, like how many people can, you know? Do you, do you think, um, Maxwell, there's an element to competitions that there's sort of been, uh, I don't know, the, the purpose of them is not really to find the best barista anymore. It Maybe it's to promote is, a, some product, some way of making something or something to make so, someone money. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're a barista competition at all, to be honest. Um, but I don't think they should be either. Uh, maybe let's change the name. But if we just go back, I just want to stay. I want to make sure I don't go too far off topic of um, staying on your line of questioning. So if we start with the competitions, right, they're clearly subjective. And people would say to me when I used to explain competition to them, well, how, do you me- how do you judge that? And I think it's quite clear to people they're subjective. I think one of the challenges of the competition is the organization won't freely say this, right? The the organization is so desperate to say, no, 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 it's not subjective. It's fully objective. And that's where we have a core problem. Uh, And and a lot of the challenges come from a desperation to try and tie something up that's subjective in a neat little bow and say it's a a simple objective competition and, and this is how it works. And then off the back of the fact that it's already difficult, right? So let's say if I, if I hired, if I hired someone uh, to do it, a job and I said look we've got these complicated rules uh, we've got these systems I would not expect them to be even remotely good at that job in a week of work which is the amount of time that most people in a year like how much time do judges and stakeholders really do this for like they're volunteer based like you said which you have to appreciate them putting in their time for free but at the same time like if I was hiring a volunteer, I'd be annoyed if they did a bad job. And I said, hey, um, this wasn't done to the standard. It needs to be done. And they'd be like, oh, come on, give me a break. I'm doing this for free. Right. Like there's an inherent challenge with the volunteer dynamic. I mean, when I was a competitor in the UK, um, I mean, like you asked me about Stephen Layton at the beginning and I like him a lot. But we fell out over the 2015 um, UK British Championships in 2014. I've done this world routine on water. I rock up at the Bristol Southwest Heat. And I just brew a shot and I'm like, oh, it tastes awful. Like, what is wrong with my coffee? And obviously my brain is thinking about water. Is that, that's all I'm thinking about. And I look under the counter and I see this 
tub of water that the machine is got is plumbed into. I said to the engineer, "Hey man, what water is in the um, tub?" And he goes, "Oh, the water fills didn't turn up, mate. That's just Bristol tap water." Oh, that must have made your hair just—you must have turned super saiyan. Yeah, mate, I was pretty angry at that point because Bristol's really bad water, right? And I, I sort of complained to the organisers. Steve was running the comp, and um, there's a few other people, and they just basically told me to shut up and put up and said, you're lucky you've even got a competition because it's hard to get sponsorship. It's hard to run. And then they sort of did the thing that, you know, for someone like me, it's like a dog with a bone. They were like, oh, it's the same for everyone. I'm like, it's not though, is it? Because you've got five heats around the UK in Scotland next week, the water's really nice and soft. So they're getting scored on soft water. And then even, even it's not the same. Like if we all turn up at the competition, if I come with a floral coffee, that water's going to destroy it. If I turn up with a, big boozy natural it will be okay with hard water so i actually um i i pulled out of that heat and i drove up to scotland the following week and took part in the scottish heat um which i which i won sort of felt weird being scottish champion uh but the bit that frustrated me the most and this was part of why i did this video is people can say i'm biased but most of what i got most angry about in comp was other competitors um in terms of their experience because I am more objective there. Like, I know that if it's me, I'm like, okay, well, I'm always going to moan because I didn't get the score I wanted. But this was at a world level. You know, I'd watch Ben put 20, uh, who's Canadian Bristol champion, 2014, round one, go through to the, to the top 12 then. And then round two, semifinals, get 100 points less. And I'm like, hey, Matt, how did that happen? He's like, oh, the judges used the rule this way in the first round and, and used it completely differently in the semifinals. And I'm just like pulling my hair out. I have more hair then. So they're um, just sort of arbitrarily applying the rules or something? or I just think, that, that, again, they're well-meaning, right? But there's no governance or consistency there. And you just start seeing this everywhere. And what I mean by this is they think they are interpreting the rules to the best of their ability in that round. But there's no one looking at it going, huh, the team in round one used that rule completely differently to the team in round two. This is not okay. Like, and I, you know, over the years being in it, I would just see this again and again and again and again. And like, what I'm trying to say is no system's perfect, but it's a bit like if you, if you build, if I built a coffee chain and I expected the coffee chain to be, you know, you would build your structure around training and staff around the staff you could get. So if you can get part-time staff, you go, okay, they're not going to be as experienced. So we need to build the structure around them. I don't feel like the structure has been built around volunteer judging, right? You've created a really complicated uh, judging structure. Those rules, like they're, every time someone moans about something, they add like an amendment to a rule, 15.2b. And you're like, look, you really, if I asked a judge, could they recite that rule in front of you on stage? Like, no, it's just unfair on the judges, you know, like, where I'm having a go at the comp is I really am. So I think you asked me when you emailed me, you said, oh, have you had any negative feedback? Mm. <laughs> right. And that's what I found so interesting about this topic. I knew this topic was sensitive. I think I'm surprised how sensitive it is. Right. Like the amount of conversation about this topic in this video is not on the comments in YouTube. It's offline. There was a there was a guy who put a judge who's doing it for 20 years in the US. He put up a really good comment on the YouTube and then it came down. And I messaged him and was like, 
uh, YouTube sometimes take the comments down. Your comment was great. Like he basically summed up my 50 minute video in a paragraph. And uh, he was like, oh, I had to take it down. Like it's too, it's too, it's going to, it's going to piss off too many people, hurt too many people's feelings, be too disruptive. I just, I don't want to, I don't want to start that. And then I had a call from someone else who said, uh, hey, Max, love the video. I could see you were moaning about the system, but several judges internationally have reached out and say they f- they feel personally attacked by my video, right? Mm. And I'm like, well, yeah, this is the problem. The problem is that you're not allowed to critique it because apparently now I'm having a go at a judge who's putting their time in and trying to do a good job. And I'm like, well, okay, like this is this is why it's broken. Yeah, well, and I, I totally agree. I mean, like we said before, lots of well-intentioned uh, people uh, that get into it for whatever reason, um, and you know, nothing is beyond criticism. And I think um, you know what you've done is ultimately a good thing because we're starting this discussion. I, I mean, I, I was even touched by it in such a way that I want to make a podcast about it. So I'm, I, I dare say, many more people. It's resonated with a lot of people. I want to. I wanted to sort of play another quote that this one I'll probably go for about a around a minute you won't be able to hear it again but i'll recite it to you but um for those listening at home listen to this ridiculous but it's kind of troubling one of the most troubling things is the way competitors are encouraged to to draw false fact like unfactual uh inconclusive or unsubstantiated scientific claims this has definitely been something that barista competitions have encouraged. And it comes from this idea that you'll score more if you can tie the way your coffee tastes, those made up flavour notes, by the way, if you can tie those to something about how the coffee was farmed. All right. So we've got there. That's the unsubstantiated claims part of the uh, of the video where, where you sort of say, Maxwell, um, baristas are encouraged or competitors are encouraged to make unsubstantiated claims. Really, you can get up there and say whatever the fuck you want, and they can't deny. Uh, well, no one. It's not in the judging the judges' sort of capability. It's not within the rules for them to be allowed to penalise you for saying something false. And really, how could they prove that it's false? They can't prove it's false in the same way that you someone can't even prove it's true. So, um, I want your. I, I, I'd, I'd like to hear about that a little bit, more, Maxwell. Yeah, no, it's a good point. It's. Um... It's funny, this this topic in particular resonates with a lot of baristas and coffee people. When I when I make a video, um, uh, I basically, you know, put up on my Instagram or whatever that I'm about to do it. And depending on the top topic and people's interest in it, you get a bunch of replies and a bunch of thought. This one got a lot, and a lot of people were talking about this in, in particular. They were talking about how this strange world where these wild sort of correlations that are unsubstantiated and arguably based on the body of knowledge in the industry you could you could argue against right um and you know just crazy things that make no sense and this is the narrative side which is oh as a barista you need a narrative for the routine and then what the judges will say to you like this would happen to me and everyone um you didn't draw enough correlation between you know that coffee's origin and the way it tastes. Now I've been involved in a bunch of science and um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a scientist, but my work in, you know, peer reviewed papers, whether it was with Chris or with other people, it's just nuts to me that if I stood up on stage and said, Hey, uh, we grew this coffee on this farm. Uh, we did this thing with the fermentation tank uh, where we got rid of the oxygen. and uh, We kept it at this temperature. We then roasted it like this. 
Uh, and it tastes like this. It's nuts to me that that would be critiqued by the judging structure more than someone who would say, uh, we put this plant into this soil, which is where the raspberry note comes from. We took out the oxygen on the fermentation tank, which is what gives it this acidity. And uh, we roast it in this way, which gives it this finish. Like that second one is reaching, that, right? It's really reaching. And, and that's what you're encouraged to do. Um, and again, I think the judges themselves don't even, it, it's so crazy because they, they're so desperate to look for ways to score. I've heard this a lot from judges. They're like, we need, we've got people in front of us and we need to find out ways to differentiate and score people. So we've ended up with someone at some point saying that you need to connect it to the flavor that becoming like how, how judging works and thinks is it even in the score sheet? I don't know. Where is that in the score sheet? Where is that in the rules? And yeah, I just, it's just crazy to me. And then if the Bristol competition is a premier platform and a premier spotlight, it's effectively also educational to a degree. Right. Mm. Um, and you know, this is the problem with the judging, right? Is if I was a judge and you said, I'd question it on the stage. You'd question right? it on the stage. Yeah. Right. Like you'd get me on the judging panel to be that judge who asked the difficult questions. Well, you were. Well, I'm, <laughs> and just, go, I'm kind of just imagining to myself now, you've got four judges, one of them's Maxwell, and you're in a Bristol competition, and you're the only one that just said, hey, hey, can you just confirm that for me, please? No, I would say, I wouldn't be looking for like a peer-reviewed academic answer. I would just feel it was my duty as a judge to let the audience know that that is up for debate. All right. And, and right? I, think, I think a lot of, um, oh, sorry, go on. I see you're on a roll here. No, 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 no. It's fine. I'm just, what I'm trying to say is with this whole thing is it's not about being right. It's not about perfect. Coffee's complicated. It's interesting. There's shit. There's loads of shit. We don't know There's stuff we do know. It's about presenting that conversation, which those coffee competitions do not do. They, they are structured to encourage a false conversation, which isn't the one we're having. And they're in danger of becoming less relevant because we don't need them as much anymore, right? Because we have, you know, better connection around the world with platforms, YouTube, social media. Um, I, it's really interesting that when I got into it, they were really the spotlight, Like you couldn't have those conversations without them, right? Mm. Well, and, and this, this bring, this is, is probably a good segue to be honest, but you know, we've got these criticisms, you know, Brewster competitions, it's, there's no real way of knowing how to win. Like, like you, the comparison you drew to, to powerlifting before, whoever lifts the most weights wins. Um, yep. But, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity in a barista competition. Uh, if you were to yeah, – the, the, rules, the rule book's like 20 pages long or something and you have to go through with a highlighter to every competitor has to do it. I did it and I, I plan on competing in barista competitions again, by the way. But, um, you know, whatever form they're in, if the, the barista one where you have to make an espresso and milk, I'll do but, um, yeah, and it, it's tough, but it's all well and good for us to come up with these criticisms, solutions, Maxwell. I know you've got some and you, you outlined some in the video, one of which that you sort of have already touched on was the judges. You feel like the judges could be a, play a more interactive role in this and you know, empowering them to sort of be a part of the performance in itself. Could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, 100%. I think one of the challenges about these competitions is they, because they're complicated, because it's not clear cut, they become very convoluted conversations. I mean, I'm aware I've, you know, 
um, that I've spoken at length about certain elements of it right now. But when I keep pulling back on it and I look after the, after working in coffee for 15 years, pretty much 14, 15, and the things I do elsewhere in coffee now, the conversations we're having as an industry about how we source coffee, about the claims we put on a pack, what are we really doing with our, not just the producers we buy from, but what are we paying our roasters? What are we doing in our businesses? What's our impact on the world? All this kind of stuff, right? The more I thought about that, the key word for me that the competition is lacking is transparency. It's just nuts for some a competition that's supposed to represent the specialty community and the industry, which is is transparency is one of the founding pillars of that movement. That there is no transparency in judging. The the other judges don't know how that judge judged. If you weren't in that judging group, you don't know how that judge went down. You know, the competitor doesn't know, the coach doesn't know, the audience doesn't know. No one really knows how it was judged. That. It, is not useful for anyone, right? Like I mentioned in my video that if you had Scott Rayo as a judge, he wouldn't judge any fermented coffee. And I mean like honey, anything. If it wasn't washed, he'd judge it. He would say, I don't like it. Right? Now, he is entitled to that opinion, right? You would have someone like me who likes aromatics over everything else, over body. And I don't want to speak on other people's behalf, but I've, I think like I think James Hoffman really likes texture. Um, I think uh, you know Charlotte Malvau. I chat to about it. Will have her preferences. Um, really experimental processing. There's all sorts, right? The point is, as an industry, we're not agreeing on everything. So why are we trying to run a competition as a mirror to the industry that pretends like judges can agree on everything? Does this make sense? Yeah, it does, and it's. I guess my responsibility to that is that it's an imperfect system. We have to try and come up with the best way, and uh, and I guess part of this uh, sort of comes yeah. I mean, my solution's pretty obvious. My solution's pretty straightforward. It's scrap the backstage deliberation. Oh, you hate have the backstage all- deliberation. I, I, I had a Mate. quote from there. I had a, I had some audio. I was going to play about that, but I can't find it. But yeah. that is. I mean, I I think I hate that the most. I've seen that from both sides, and I think that is the most poisonous part of the competition hands down hands down the worst part anyway why 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 is it the most poisonous part because of so we've got judges who who we're saying it's we're saying it's subjective right if we say this is a subjective competition uh and people have different opinions and stuff what we're effectively saying with the backstage is we're trying to um reduce that in some way to bring those judges into line in some way. Right. Mm. So there's so much about it. That's odd to me. If you've got four judges whose opinions you value and they have different opinions, why do you need to debate those opinions backstage for an hour? The problem with the judge, like there's head judges of different approaches. You'll have a head judge who feels like they are there more to reiterate a rule. But again, across the whole fricking community, no one agrees on the rules. So if they were there like a referee to go, Oh, so that rule means this. So you can't give them zero, but that's like a referee. But obviously, there's no clear implementation of head judging. There's stronger head judges who basically push a whole a whole backstage team towards a certain score. And there's ones who are more hands off. 
And then you have these things about, uh, you know, scores shouldn't be too far apart. So then you've got someone who gives it a two and someone's a four. And like, how do we get them to be more in line? Like, why do they need to be more online to start with? But then you get the group dynamic thing. Now, I'm interested in group dynamics. I'm interested in customers who walk into a, a bar. Um, no one can deny group dynamics, right? So there's stronger you, people you, in a you room. You referred to it, uh, as I recall, as jury duty as well. Is this, is this leading onto the group dynamic part? Yeah, 100%. So it is jury duty, right? Which is you're going to have stronger people in a room and more passive people in a room. Uh, not that I don't want to get too semantic here. You can be passive and strong. But anyway, the, the point is... You know, the example I use in the video is James Hoffman said to me that he wasn't actively trying to change anyone's score. He was just very confident with his score to the point where the other people in the room didn't want to argue with him to put their score up. But why have they got to put their score up? Why couldn't they just leave their score the same? Oh, because all the scores are supposed to be close. So you create a system where you don't allow people to have independent decisions. You're basically saying the judges all have to agree on something and you're going to agree whoever argues the strongest, right? Or ultimately the head judge has the position of power because they can enforce things. You hear this, you hear judges walking out of back rooms, back rooms really angry because the head judge kind basically... Of, um, drawing me back to year 12 when we were studying 12 Angry Men. Have you, have you seen, that, uh, seen that play or movie? No, no, tell me about that. Well, well it's, uh, it's, it's about a... Um... It's about, uh, it's 12 angry men, as you would say, and they come from all different backgrounds and there's, and they're jurors in a case where they're trying to try a young boy. And um, yeah, just everyone, 11 of them start out wanting to find him guilty, but there's this one really calm, pragmatic guy who just manages to turn them all. It's, yeah, it's a fascinating thing, but you know. Perhaps- yeah, group dynamic. Mm. But the thing is like, there's a place in our society where you have to have group dynamic you have to have um, boards and committees and of course but why do we need it in barista comps we don't need it we can <laughs> at all um, but also I believe what you're doing is you're robbing the community of a very important part of coffee evaluation which is judging and review right as in it's valuable for all of us to see what those judges think like you're, you're keeping that from us that's that's not good for the community right like what someone does a routine and you see someone on stage say, you know, I felt like it was too anaerobic for me. I feel like it dominates the terroir. I can't taste the varietal. Seeing someone say that as a community, as me and you could then debate anaerobic processing and whether we think it overcovers the terroir, right? Mm. But like we can't have that conversation because we don't see what the judging is. We just get place one, place two, place three, place four. There's, it's so valuable to see the judging side of it. Um, but also it creates more transparency. The judges have to own own those scores immediately. You can't change those scores as much. I just think... Well, to do this, Maxwell, well, you'd have to have some pretty prepared and seasoned judges, right? Yeah, so I agree with the problem, which is... And, and that's actually... The argument, I think, is that... You've already seen this with getting rid of the tech judges in the world finals, right? You feel like you need tech judges at a national level, but you don't need them at a world final. Like, the best place to test this would be the world finals right so like you get through to the world finals and you get rid of backstage and in the in the world final the competitor does their comp they do their um do, do their routine and uh you immediately have a score from each judge and then each judge backs up their score with a mic and explains why they gave it um 
and then how far you know basically you're right you need judges there's there's a judging this is the common problem there is a judging shortage to do 60 championships around the world um and that was one person's argument to me that was dales which was what you're talking about is national competitions the world's is a different kettle of fish and the thing is i agree the world's is likely to be less farcical because it's better structured better funded and there's accreditation involved as well to becoming a world's judge yeah but what what accreditation is that really though well you you need to have uh, done x amount of national championships in your two years yeah well it, it yeah okay well i'll take your point but um my, my, my point there is that i think i agree there's a bit more experience but still nothing compared to what would be required to execute that rule set with its complexity when i was at the um i can't remember if this was 2017 or 18 so there was this rule that everyone changed, taste balance versus uh, taste descriptor, right? So it was this, back in the day, you'd say, oh, you know, it tastes of orange, raspberry, cocoa. And then someone at one national, one national organization said, look, they didn't say raspberry acidity. They only said uh, raspberry. So do I mark that in taste description or taste balance for acidity? And then they, everyone said, no, you have to split them out. So you have to say orange acidity and orange flavor. So for about two years, all the judges, competitors did this. I rocked up at this world championship, might've been 2016 actually. And I was on the board at this time. And I was watching the backstage deliberation, the backstage um, calibration of judges, sorry, a couple of days before. It is chaos. There are hundreds of judges backstage. They're all trying to calibrate. They're all scoring and everyone's running around and there's debates. Do we use that rule like this or like that? And in this case, a very strong organiser who's a head judge, but also on the board, just made the call. And they went, no, we're getting rid of that rule. We're going to go back to the way we used to do it. And I'm like, I, my mind is blown. I'm like, all of these world competitors here have all trained for the rule to be the way it's been for two years. And two days before the world championships, you're going to change that rule. Yeah, it seems like a bit of a um, bit of a doozy. Well, it's just, I mean, the thing is, you just see this everywhere because it's a mess, right? Because, because it's volunteer-based, because there isn't necessarily auditing or structure. Like, I feel sorry for anyone involved. Like, how could you run that well? It's just, like, nuts, right? But, like, audit, you know, I remember hearing about, you know, you could put, you could put some stuff in place. You could try and create some third part. So I've become so fascinated with auditing, right? Because it's, it sounds boring and dull, but it's really just verification, which is last year we had to become a uh, BRC level compliant company, which is really just a, a level of compliance on traceability and food safety. So if you bought a bag of coffee from me at, uh, and it said Ethiopian on the label, how do I prove that that coffee's in that bag? Well, sounds like a simple, it sounds like a simple question, right? Mm. Like an obvious one, but it's harder than you think. Like most independent roasteries wouldn't be able to prove it. Because they buy through some sort of third party exporter or something. No, 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 sorry. No, no, literally um, not, not um, supply, not the supply chain back. I mean, traceability within your roastery. So, You've got a rack of green coffee. You've got some Ethiopian on the wall. You've got this, you've got this. Uh, I don't know, you've got Mexican, you've got Colombian. 
how do you know you roasted 10 coffees that day how do you prove that ethiopian coffee ended up in the bag and someone didn't accidentally put colombian in there's multiple points of risk putting the green coffee into the roaster do two bags look similar how do you make sure it's a different bag the coffee comes out the roaster how does it get labeled out the roaster then it makes its way to a packing bench how does it how do you know that that got packed in there and the label is right these are sort of you know if you if you were a large manufacturer of chicken or something you'd have to do all this right um sorry one sec um and it's all sort of boring stuff but it became fascinating to me because i see it throughout coffee and the coffee competition has no real auditing and if you say it's subjective and you say oh it's it's imperfect and it's a mess you're also stopping yourself from improving it which is where i feel the coffee competition is is everyone's like yeah max it's not perfect but it never will be so what's the point and the, the, i have this challenge with most things in coffee coffee's complicated right which is what does perfect sourcing look like what does a perfect coffee farm look like I don't know if I could tell you. I think it would be different country to country and also producer to producer to what they want to do. But just because you can't get somewhere perfect today doesn't mean you don't acknowledge areas you can improve, right? Mm. Do, do you see what I mean? Like, Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you have recycling, right? This is often happens with recycling. So most recycling relies on consumer behavior. So if you're going to recycle a coffee pot, I can say, hey, my coffee pods are recyclable. But if you buy it from me and you're not going to recycle it, then the fact it's recyclable doesn't matter. It doesn't actually get recycled. Right. Mm -hmm. And I saw this with the cup thing, the takeaway cup thing. So you'd see these companies coming out and we've made this cup out of half paper and half plastic and you can turn it into furniture. And I'm like, okay, can you show me? a PO from a company that's actually going to buy this weird material off you and actually make a piece of furniture out of it. And I guess what I'm interested in is if you said to me, Hey Max, I've come up with a theory for the perfect sustainable coffee cup. And if everybody does what they're supposed to, it's a hundred percent the best way to do it. I'd be like, cool. And then if alternatively you said to me, there's this other way of doing it. It's not as good, but 50%, for it to be 50% as good, no one has to do anything. It's like super easy. That is actually the better solution because the, the 100% solution that only 10% of people follow is a worse solution than the 50% solution. So imperfect improvements are the way forward, right? Pointing out like a perfect scenario, which is unattainable is, is, is just pointless. Like that's not what I'm trying to do here. Like, and with my whole approach to these coffee comps is I'm trying to critique the bits. I'm trying to be constructive at the same time. I'm not trying to say that the coffee competition should be what Maxwell thinks it should be, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. I'm saying there's these areas that don't work that we need to stop saying it's okay that they're the way they are. And think, we need to evolve the competition. Do you think that we need an injection? Like I think obviously we do. We need an injection of some money, some cash into the Brewster competition world. And one idea that I sort of, I think baristas have a, and I'm guilty of having it in the past too, is sort of a a sort of negative view of big coffee companies or big sort of companies that are some way involved in coffee. But could we sort of have a more diplomatic relationship with them, get them involved in competitions, get the sponsorship money behind competitions and implement some of these changes that might make the competition better? Yeah, I mean, I think the the money thing, I think one of the problems I have with, 
Um, so yeah, I mean, a hundred percent everything you just said. So I get annoyed with the, the binary black and white mindset of small companies in coffee, assuming big companies are just bad um, and assuming they're way better. Uh, I mean, one of the ones that really annoys me is, so when, after I did the sustainability video, I spoke to lots of people through the supply chain trying to ask questions about what do you think, you know, what do you think of uh, Rainforest Alliance? What do you think of fair trade? What, what do you think of, what does that mean to you as an importer, an exporter, a producer? One, everybody I met said two things. They said, oh, you know, um, Rainforest Alliance is pretty good. Uh, it's not that onerous because the onerous thing is what people forget, right? For me to become BRC compliant as a roastery, I had to spend thousands and thousands of pounds. If you want a farmer to be audited, it costs money, right? Um, anyway, where I'm going with this is a, a pretty strong claim this person made, which I think is really fascinating for us to ask ourselves. If every independent coffee shop was replaced with a Starbucks, producers would be better off. You, you, you're pro, you, you agree with that? I think it's a strong argument that we should address because... I think we just assume we're doing so much better in specialty and third wave, right? So cafe practices is the Starbucks sourcing program. And by all accounts, it's the best sourcing program out there. The problem with it is if you pass the cafe practices sourcing criteria, you can't use it for anything else but selling to Starbucks. So that's its biggest drawback. Whereas if you became Rainforest Alliance or Oots, you could sell you've become a Rainforest Alliance producer and you can sell that to anyone, right? But the reason I'm saying it is I don't think most, a lot of people working in coffee will have even considered that Starbucks might actually have a better sourcing program than the specialty roaster that they buy from. Yeah, and it, 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 it would seem foreign to a lot of people, but, you know, it, it makes sense. They've got the purchasing power. They've they've got the, the capability to be able to, to make some of these improvements to coffee producers' lives. Yeah, and then there's the other one is the is the the classic thing that we have to also understand at the pyramid. If if you're only buying the most expensive coffee, you know, like the the producers, there, there's a correlation. The most expensive coffee is typically wealthier producers as well, right? Mm. So there's some you know there's some conversations here that are quite complex and nuanced that people just don't have. And I think third wave is quite or specialty is quite binary, and the coffee competitions too. But um, to be honest, though, my what I wanted to make the point there was I'm not sure there's no money in barista comps. Well, I, I think it's very lucrative for the people that win it. Well, no, no, no. Uh, sorry, agreed. Potentially, if they can manage it. I mean, I was, I, you know, the to put on an event. I know how expensive it is to put on an event, and one of the major challenges on the world board was there is a massive fear of losing the sponsorship. Which right. is, you know, it seems legit. If you don't want to risk the, you know, the capability of the competition going ahead. Yeah, but and and the, and the major problem is is that it's reliant on two main sponsors. I mean, the espresso machine sponsor basically supports that whole comp, but that also means you've ended up in a position where you're sort of, you know, your hands are tied. Really, you're you're, you're basically high risk. So if I'm a coffee business and I never want any one customer to be more than 10% of my revenue, right? Mm. Because if one day they go, hey, Max, it's been great. We're going to go to this other roaster and they're 50% of my business. I'm screwed. So strategically, the current 
reliance on a few key sponsors is not good. It doesn't allow you to change the competition because if you change it in a way that pisses off that sponsor, you don't have a competition, right? We're, we're talking solutions here. So if in the absence of those sponsors and, and Maxwell's solution to this, are you saying we, we, we could get some more, invite someone like a Starbucks or an Illy or like something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort? I'm basically saying that the, the current, comp- there's only one competition, right? So what I'm trying to say about, before you talk about solutions, you have to properly identify the problems. And what I'm saying there is the assumption that there isn't any money in barista comps, I think is an assumption. I'm not sure it's the truth. And the only example we see is the world championships. And if, if those say we struggle with money, then we all go, okay, they struggle with money. But I mean, I don't want to get too political here, but um, you know, I don't know if you saw the SCA salaries um, that were published uh, last year and they popped up recently, the senior team across the SCA, the salaries they're on. I haven't seen it. Is it exorbitant? Is it good? Are they, are they on a good, decent wicket? Uh, it's huge. It's, it's, it's So I think a lot of people who work in coffee haven't been involved in sort of benchmarking CEO roles and things like this. So they go, oh, well, you know, I guess that's what that costs. But don't right? we want to have, uh, uh, don't we want to intra- attract people that are good for the role? I mean, you know, perhaps, I, I, I don't know what the figure it is, but perhaps we want to. $350,000 it was. US? Yeah. Oh, geez, that's, that's quite a lot. For, for Let me just be clear about this. The way, I don't want to go too off topic, but I've been involved in some fundraising and I have investors and, and I've done some interesting things the last few years. And, you only want to pay for that role relative to impact. So, you know, and that's where benchmarking comes from. So I say, okay, I, I, I run a 10 million pound. I don't, maybe in a few years, but um, a 10 million pound revenue business. Now, if you don't want that business to be loss making, and if the business makes X margin or whatever, you have basically a budget within that revenue for salaries, right? And you benchmark them. You go, okay, well, what does a good CEO for a 10 million pound revenue company cost? What does a good COO, what does a good CFO, like uh, chief financial officer, what do they cost? And maybe you raise some money and you figure out what you need to pay. So I agree, like I, just to be clear here, I am not anti-capitalist, anti-reward of uh, good leadership and excellence. I believe you need to pay for good people the question is what is that how much money is that 350 is way too much for uh, a members organization that only turns over 8 million well yeah i mean it's probably disproportionately high and and i guess uh, if you benchmark it if you benchmark it against other businesses um of a similar size or organizations of a similar size non-profit or not you'll find about you'll hit more, less than half that as the benchmark typically yeah, and you know, look, the the, the way I'll sum that up, that up is I'm when I think about that in the context of you know having a lot of volunteers work for you, it is surprising. Yeah, that's that's my point. My point is that um, there's probably more money to be distributed into uh, the success of these. I mean, the other one is the the so the WCE is effectively owned by the SCA. The WCE runs the competitions, and they are a, a commercial entity more than the SCA, which is more members. But, mem- but the SCA has the final say on it. It's kind of a strange relationship, but they run the All-Stars events and they, they generate pretty good revenue. Um, I don't know. I think the question is, is that conversation having every- is that happening every year? Is there a question? I mean, at a national level, you get zero help. 
from the SC, uh, from the SEA and the WCE, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, so, uh, sorry, go on. You basically you get you vote in a national coordinator. The existing people run that. Why do they run that? Because they're fed up of running it. So they organise a vote for the next people to come in for two years. It's a small team of three or four volunteers. Uh, I'm going to be honest, like not to have a go at any of the people. It ends up being one or two people who run it and the others who are on the board don't really have the time or don't turn up to all the board meetings or whatever. Typical volunteer stuff. Um, and then you, you've got the rule set. You've got that anyone can find online. You maybe once a year have the option to jump on a call for international coordinators for like a two hour call. That's like it. The WC doesn't come along and see how you're running it or check in on you. You're basically doing it all on your own. So I, I feel like part of my critique of the whole thing also comes back to my interest in organizations. And I think it's a very poorly structured uh, organization as an event throughout the year across 60 countries. I want to I want to finish up on the barista competition thing because there is one other thing that I I, I didn't sort of warn you about that, but I do want to ask you about. But first, let's let's sort of summarize what we we've come up. Just, with. Just, yeah, I know you want to stay on positives, but um, the uh, of the change, um, which obviously I tried to have in my video quite a lot. I think I I think there's two ways you go with the barista comp. If you point out all the problems, I think most people's um, intuition is to go to making it more objective. They're like, oh well, let's get rid of this. Let's just have people make coffee. for uh, like Have like a fake bar and say, oh, can you make 10 coffees in a row the fastest, like, like you would in a cafe, right? And the answer is you could create that competition. It would be objective. Would people watch it? Well, I don't think I would. Would it have a big impact on the coffee world? I don't think it would. And this is, my, this is what I think we all struggle with as human beings is when something does good, is good and bad at the same time, how do you make sure you see the good and you don't just tear it down because you're annoyed by the bad, right? Mm. So my point that I keep making to people is in conversations about how do you make it more inclusive? How do you make it more accessible? How do you do all these things? The 15 minute vibe on stage clearly works. Mm. The 15 minute TED talk model clearly works like this spectacle. Like I, I think you'd be insane to get rid of that. So if you're going to keep that, it means you're going to keep it subjective. You're going to be judging people and not just cups of coffee, because otherwise you wouldn't have the person on stage with a mic. You would just judge their coffee. So we're going to keep it subjective because there's a lot of value there to to highlight people and stories about people in the coffee industry. Okay, so how do you support subjective comp? Well, you're honest about it. You own it and you bring the judges into it. You make it transparent. Can you do that at every national level? I'm not sure you could with the resource and structure right now. Could you improve the restructuring structure to help do that? Yes. But in the meantime, you could start where you do have the resource, which is at the World Championships. So I see a competition that doesn't look that different. I see 15 minutes on stage. I see no backstage deliberation. I see judges mic'd up. Um, and that, for me, starts to resolve a lot of these challenges. And, and, and I, think, I think they're all really good points that you make, Maxwell. And you know, the model, like you said, is good. Perhaps the criteria for scoring could be assessed um, and like you said better financing and sort of experimenting a little bit might be as a good place to start as well trying some things if it doesn't work one year change it the next like with the NBA for example they they try new things at the all-star game and you know some of yeah they're, they're, totally it's the same as Formula One right which I follow which is you make changes people don't, if you're going to make changes 
some of them are going to be good changes some of them are going to be bad like for me like i'm involved in r&d and stuff like you don't get everything perfect but you have to iterate and there's not a lot of iteration in the coffee cons yeah and um i am good right, let, let's finish up on barista competitions you, you you know there's one thing you and dale harris have in common you can both yeah. really talk. He he can talk the legs off a chair, but you know this is this is a one hour and twenty minute podcast, and I can talk the legs off a chair too. But one of the longer ones. But I, there's something I want to ask you. There's uh, there was an article came out from the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, yesterday that I shared and had a bit of a suck about, and because I've got a lot of friends that are sort of non coffee friends that are saying, "Oh no, we're about to have to pay more for coffee." You know, their 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 standard cup of coffee could increase very soon because of the supply shock issue out of Brazil. Um, yeah, yeah. So the, the market's the highest it's been in 10 years. Yeah. The market's the highest it's been in 10 years. And who knows? But so with cups of coffee in Australia, as you would know. Sorry, one second. I'm just going to, if anyone can hear my dogs in the background. Um, no, bring them in. I apologize. Oh, no, bring them in. You can probably hear my brother or my dad back there and, you know. Yeah. So, but yeah, sorry, you were talk- talking about price and people are moaning about it. Well, I'll, I'll put a question to you. What, was, what would you say was the average uh, price of co- uh, a six-ounce latte uh, when you were working as a barista in Melbourne? What was, what, was the, what was the price you would sort of generally see coffee shops charge in Australia? Oh, man, I can't remember. Was it $3.50 or $4, something like that? It hasn't changed since then. So it's, I would say the exact same thing. Inflation. So uh, for anyone in economic terms, inflation is the, C- they call it CPI in Australia. It's measured uh, by, they, they assess a chain, uh, a basket of goods that has 80,000 things in it and the increase in the prices for whatever reason is the inflation rate. And it's usually about 2 to 3% each year. We haven't, like, it just, it doesn't, for some reason it doesn't apply to a latte. And because people in Australia, and, and particularly in Melbourne, they think it's a human right. Yeah, yeah, like the loaf of bread in Rome, right? Like you, like uh, it's this thing you don't touch. Um, do do you think is that just indie coffee? Do you think the chains are not putting the inflation in as well? Well, the the chains charge appropriately. It is. I was working at a uh, so I was working at a place called Abacus uh, just just as I was uh, living in Melbourne up until June, and which we like you'd get bullied if you put the price up by your customers, and for some reason. <laughs> They charge so it was four dollars for a six ounce latte at Abacus, and I shit you not, we're ten meters away from a McDonald's who charge four dollars fifty or four dollars sixty or something. Yeah, so I I agree with you wholeheartedly. This dynamic is strange, and I call it stress testing. So what we just said about the barista comp, where you could try something new, see if it works, see if it doesn't. Pricing is the same, really, and bigger organisations put a lot more. Uh, iterative stress testing. So you push the price up and down store to store. You know, if you're a supermarket or I, mean, I used to work in petrol stations and the fuel costs different amounts based on where you are, right? It's not a blanket price. Um, and that sort of like is a very commercial way of thinking. Like, are we charging the right amount relative to the cost of our goods? Do we charge more in this store, less in that store? There's just not a lot of that in independent coffee, like not you know, it's hard to run a cafe. You're busy, you're on the floor, you're managing your team. So I don't think there's a lot of people really stress testing the price. And and I did a I did an episode on the race to the bottom and it all starts with the price, right? Like if if an operator isn't willing to put their price up, even though there's inflation, 
well, yeah, that roaster who will give you a free machine and training and put the coffee, give you the coffee that's similar for another dollar less a kilo. Well, that's pretty appealing if you're not willing to put your prices up, right? Yeah. Um, go on. Well, it's just it, it, there's just so many uh, subsequent uh, unintended consequences of charging a low amount for coffee, I feel like. In, in Australia, wage theft or not paying people properly is endemic in, in the industry. Yeah. We've, we've got this program called superannuation in Australia where so you're supposed to get 10% of your salary put away for your retirement savings, and I've got virtually nothing because I've worked in specialty coffee my whole professional career. I've had one or two. Yeah, I mean, this this is um i think the pricing as well like again uh, in a complex industry it's easy to miss uh the requirement to pay correctly throughout the whole supply chain so i would wager that one of the things that sort of irritates me the most is i watch a company talk about how it paid a sustainable price for green coffee and everyone's like oh what an amazing company and then the head roaster messages me says they do 50 to 60 hours a week and barely make minimum wage, right? Mm. For a what's a skilled job. So, uh, what well, I I think the pricing. So, so j- I think economic modelling in third wave roasteries is all wrong. The model's all wrong, and I think in ca- the indie cafe scene, there's a lack of confidence to treat your business as a business. And then under under all of that, the whole coffee community has a bit of an identity crisis. I think around struggling with the concept of premium v accessible. So I think what happens is we want to, on the one hand, like, yeah, that coffee's incredible. Of course, you want to pay more for that. Oh, on the other hand, we want great coffee to be accessible so everyone can buy it. And we don't want to cost more than anywhere else. I, I was on a panel, uh, a trade show. We started trade shows again here, uh, which must be wild to Con- you. But... Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was on this panel with this, this rollout in the UK. These stores are beautiful. They're actually inspired by an Australian brand called Aesop. Um, that's uh, just like with the, oh, so Aesop. They 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 know how to charge for their products. That's like a bo- do, right? that's like a bottle of soap that's like twenty two Australian dollars, and it's like fuck you guys, you guys are killing it. Like <laughs> they really know how to charge. Yeah, right. And those stores are beautiful, and 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 you would wager that those stores are designed to match that price point. They look exclusive, right? Mm. Anyway, this person who's behind this rollout, eight stores now. They're all beautiful. Um, incredible fit outs cost of fortune they look like art galleries he he was worried about charging too much because he's like oh i i, I don't want to you know there's, a, there's this business around the corner and i want it to be accessible and i'm like man you've got to own it the space you're in you know look at the way you design your stores and everything like there's there's this funny thing that comes with price like you said that right and i think especially coffee is an interesting space because we all assume that we all think the same thing in it but there's actually some competing values in specialty like is your coffee business about craft and local or is it about premium and quality? Those things aren't necessarily the same, right? Yeah. And like, sorry. Yeah, go on. Well, it's just like, I, I can't help but think that there's, you know, we've got this issue, but there's, there's, there's more coming. Like there's, there's more issues coming for the specialty coffee supply chain. Like you think of something uh, like the frosting, the mass frosting event in Brazil and a few years ago, there was a huge, um, I think it was 2018, I actually went to Brazil and there was a huge increase in the, in the yield of the plants. And so they're, they're, 
they produced like 33% more than they usually would have. And it just it made the sea price collapse and it, it hurt a lot of people. And um, I just think there's more sort of environmental disasters that are coming that will affect coffee supply and even um, polit- yeah, political ones and sort of failures as well. You look at the Suez crisis, the, the blockage of the Suez yeah, canal. The canal. Yeah. That, that would have affected yeah. the... I mean, the- economically... Uh, any any industry that's super tight throughout the whole supply chain basically is a bit like a concrete building in an earthquake. It doesn't have any flex to deal with those surprise, uh, occur, you know, the, those events, right? Those disruptive events. And, um, you know, there's a lot, I mean, I think there's a lot of third wave coffee companies as well, like um, not building a sustainable model at the, even at the roastery cafe end, uh, at least that's what I see in the UK and London, you know, like heavily funded or loss making or not paying the staff right um and yeah i think i agree with you 100 percent. like it's uh, the the bigger companies are better at all this right like i actually don't like working with it uh i say this in the right way um we work with some wholesale indie cafes who are great who know what they're doing great operators and they buy some coffee off us and it's a great relationship but that whole space of cafe supply i try not to be in it at all right it's like it's very competitive in the uk and there's a lack of business understanding that tends to happen so i'm like how good do you really think the coffee will be for that price per kilo right at some point you know you're not paying enough maybe the owner did you a deal or the salesperson you made fine but i think a big i like working so we like selling coffee straight to end consumers because their mindset isn't our I need to get this price per kilo and free training. Their mindset is I want good coffee and I'm going to pay for good coffee for me as a person. Mm. So they're great. Uh, Selling online comes with all of its own problems like postage and packaging, but that's great. And then working with structured, slightly bigger businesses are who I prefer to work with, right? Because they know this stuff and you can be transparent with them. You can do open book. You can say, this is the coffee price. Like I have a, we do a project into a UK supermarket, which is an amazing project at Mozambique. And they're aware of the sea price and they're asking me when the price is going to go up because they expect it to. Whereas, um, you know, a, a smaller operators, you know, doesn't understand the market as much. And then it's just going to be like, well, you know, I'll go somewhere else or something if the price goes up. So I think, yeah, I, I, there's a way we, the way we sell coffee is a problem in specialty as well, at least in the UK, because it's about selling a lifestyle and a dream. And there isn't a conversation about the raw ingredients, right? Yeah, and uh, like I'm, I just thought of the most radical idea, Maxwell. I think every barista in Australia should go on strike at some stage this year, just to raise awareness to the issue. Just like you know, hey, we we think the people supplying this should get a bit more money, and you know, we think that the model of the way bi- uh, coffee businesses are run in Australia should really be reformed because I think it's I think it's a pretty toxic atmosphere in some ways, and uh, I can't speak for the UK or anywhere else abroad, but I'm sure they experience many of the same issues. Yeah, I think it's, um, and you're right, it's sort of like, how do, how do you see that change and when does it come about? I think I think what's interesting is that I do think independent coffee will, or third way or specialty, however you want to define it, it will it will be forced to change in the long term. It's just slow to adapt. Like um, the price will go up. It's going to be super hard where it is going up, but you won't see the ramifications for a lot of the roasteries until the next couple of years. And I think you'll go in a cycle, which is a bit depressing to see that cycle. Like, when specialty started in the UK, it was people coming in and their narrative was, yeah, it costs more, but this is why it's better. That was the narrative, right? 
then that space gets competitive. Loads of people go, oh, there's a business opportunity here to run a coffee brand that looks like this and roasts on this roaster and uses this equipment in the... And you're like, is that the same thing anymore? Or is that someone taking that image and, and having a go at having, you know, taking some business in that space? And then before you know it, the price per kilo is lower than the commercial coffee. Like this is happening in the UK. Um, and you're sort of like, there'll be a point where it doesn't work and they figure that out. And then you'll have a new wave of roasters and shops that come through that then fight the old wave of specialty. Does that, does that make sense? It's almost like we all forget as well that I think everyone sits here and thinks you, you know, you, you create that binary polemic between like big Starbucks and everything. At one point, Starbucks was the cool third wave upstart, right? Well, not third wave if you use those terms, but it was the school, it was the cool, it had one or two stores was bringing its own coffee in and I think um, you're going to see that happen in with the current wave of specialty roasters and cafes as well. Maxwell, you've been so generous with your time. We've spoken about a lot tonight. One more thing I'll ask you, your final remarks. What do, what, what, what do you want the people out there listening to the Sub-Zero podcast to know about Maxwell Kalana Dashwood and what's happening with you in the future? Uh, I, I hope to achieve an all-time life lifetime goal of a 300 kilo deadlift within the next two years 300 kilos what are you at now two 260 260 well mate you should get on to my brother he, he you know he's uh <laughs> oh, he i'm sure he could probably do 300 kilos he's a strong guy he weighs 120 something kilos i think so oh yeah well that's 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 different kettle of fish i only weigh 85 but yeah i think from a from a coffee point of view like um you know i'd the my my critique to any area of the business is because I'm super passionate about the industry. It's got so much to give. I'm so glad I work in coffee. I don't think I'd want to work anywhere else. Um, and uh, yeah, I appreciate all the conversation. I think that one of the positive things I'm seeing is is more open conversation, more critique. Uh, I think the community around the world is stronger than ever before. So you know, I, I have a, I've always had a focus, I guess, as an entrepreneur or a problem solver. I get interested in problems. Because if you can attack the problems, you can improve things, right? But I, I would just like to say that I think um, even though we've got plenty of challenges we need to address, you know, coffee is an amazing space that has a lot to give. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate all the support I've had from everyone throughout coffee. It's such a, I've done so much of what I've done is collaboration based. I wouldn't be able to do any of it without working with other great people. Well, yeah. And, you know, hit the nail right on the head there mate and um you know I, I guess i'd like to say personally thank you for your honesty and you know being brave enough to make these videos and starting conversations because i'm sure you get some negative feedback as as well as the positive and you take the goods to the bad but also uh we, we've got the world brister championship coming up soon another one um and you know to all the to all the competitors that who may have listened to this before they go if, if i release it in time um you know hope hope you don't think we're taking shots at you but Wish you the best of luck. I think, yeah, sorry. I think uh, one thing I was always told, which I do believe in, but again, I uh, you've got to be careful. It's not a cop-out for not improving judging. But ultimately, what I always said, I realised quite quickly, I was like, mm, I'm not sure that the highest score is the best routine. So for me, it was always about going on stage and doing something I believed in that I was proud of. And then, you know, that that's valuable either way, right? Like whatever score you get, doing that is a valuable thing. And I know, you know, every competitor going to that world championships is going there to do that. So I, I firmly believe that it's the competitors who have standing on stage, doing these interesting routines 
that have made the competition what it is today. And it's almost like in some cases, competitors have done it in spite of the system not being great, right? Mm. It's like these amazing people from around the world doing these things. Um, so I, all power to them, I think. You know, it's hard. Some of my some of my staff talk about competing, and after speaking to me for several hours, they're not sure they want to compete anymore. And I'm like, uh, "There's, I got so much from it. I wouldn't want to go back in time and not compete. Mm. Uh, I still think I think it's a super valuable platform. But um, go into it knowing some of these challenges, and if if you can do that, you'll have a great time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again. Good luck to everyone out there competing. I hope you have a great time, and uh, it's it's great to see it back after the little uh, coronavirus hiatus. Um, you know, hopefully we Australians can join in soon. I think so. We've actually been banned from leaving the country, and next next month in uh, November, the ban will be lifted, so we'll be able to you know come and enjoy coffee overseas sometime soon, and people will be able. Well, you to get come the, in. the Australian representative Hugh Kelly's going out there, right? Hugh Kelly's going, and I think he'll. Uh, he's a three-time Australian Bristol champion, and Carlos is going. And um, actually, the, one of uh, one of my former staff members worked under me at Saint Ali. He's uh, Korean, but he's won the Australian Cup Tasters Championship. So he has to move back to Korea because he's leaving to compete in the um, in the, the World Cup Tasting Champion. It's just heartbreaking. His name is Charlie Shuvley. So if you uh, the, on Instagram, so if you um, if you follow him, give him all your support. He's uh, it's a terrible thing to go through, and I think he'll win. He's such a good cup taster. But yeah, just a yeah, bizarre yeah, yeah. thing we have to go through as Australians right now. It is super weird, right? Going to live in another country to take part in a Bristol competition or a, a tasting competition. Well, he's basically being kicked out of it because he won the Australian one and he's representing Australia and he'll probably win the Worlds because he's that good. So, bizarre. But anyway, um, beyond the scope of a, of, a, of a coffee podcast, I think. But, Maxwell, thank you so much again for your time. This has been, like, one of the greatest podcasts I think I've recorded because, you know the contents of it and you're obviously you're a great public speaker and I've really loved having you on and I've wanted I've, you know we've met once before in Melbourne not sure if you remember but um was that was that 2018 was it when uh, I think you came out for a uh, talk with Veneziano I think you were helping that's right Craig, yeah, yeah. Craig yeah. um Craig uh, Simon prepare for the, the World Bristol Championship who also has some spicy uh views on this topic <laughs> I'm gonna jump I'm actually gonna have a I'm actually having a I'm going to do a little video with Craig about his um, his flavor matrix. Yeah, well, he, he so, presented something really good, and uh, I actually asked him onto the podcast. You know, I've been harassing him for like three or four years to come on uh, and talk about this very subject because I, I think he uh, he uh, he he had he feels he was treated um, or scored harshly. I guess would would be one way of saying. Yeah, that. I think I think he. I mean, uh, you know, um, I know we're. We're drawing to you were drawing to a close very well there, um, so you could probably just cut this off. No, no, but no. Um, uh, you, you definitely get um, the the rewarding of innovation is definitely something that's limited in the competition right now, and that is recognised by everyone who takes part at, at a judging level. Like when I was on the world board, they acknowledged that you look on that score sheet, there isn't really anywhere to reward innovation, and there is a challenge here, which is if you create an, uh, a curriculum like a school curriculum, like hey, here's a test. What you do is you want kids to to follow what you set out. You say, look, this is what good looks like. Do this and I'll give you the mark, right? You're not asking people to be creative. You're asking them to, to, to learn the way it's done and just repeat it, right? And so Craig's routine. So I'm really interested in talking to him about, because I did my Flavor Note video, obviously, saying that I think Flavor Notes generally suck a bit. Um, 
they have their pros and their cons. He was trying to bring a structure from wine, which I totally agree with. I look at wine, I go, okay, flavor notes can work if there's a structure, like an official structure that we all learn rather than just tasting something going, hey, what do you think it tastes like? And just pick something out of thin air. So, but he was basically presenting a structure of tasting, which wasn't the way they score. So he's directly challenging the way they score, right? Mm. Um, and I, I sort of did that a bit in 2015 as well. And it's it's very hard to do something outside the box, challenge the status quo and win that competition, like really hard. Mm. Uh, and I, I remember when I did the 2014 water one and lots of people said to me leading up to it, like, oh, you know, it's quite complicated. You're covering this. A lot of what you're doing isn't on the score sheet. And I was like, well, yeah, whatever. Um, I came fifth. I was devastated at the time. Now looking back, I'm like, fuck, man, I made three world finals. I feel so lucky considering the way the comp works. But even even then, even even without the rule problems, I just feel lucky to get there. Like everyone turns up with great coffee and does a good routine, right? Mm. Anyway, I got backstage to do my debrief. And first thing someone said to me is, oh, Maxwell, that, you know, it was just a bit too much about water and not enough about coffee. And I was like, yeah, it was about water, right? <laughs> that was the routine, right? Anyway, I look back on it and I think nothing I did in barista competitions had a bit as big an impact on my career and the network and the things I've done in coffee as that routine. So if I'd have gone back in time and said, okay, the judges aren't going to reward this because it's too much about water and that's not on the score sheet. And I didn't do that routine. I'd be worse off, right? So so like doing that routine using that platform you need to get through to like the semis or the finals to have the world take notice really like if you come 40th unfortunately i don't think most people are really talking about that routine so but i think there's an it doesn't reward innovation that well it doesn't reward challenging the status quo very well so and that is again the structure so you feel for the judges like i feel for the judges if they were sat scoring my routine or craig's routine they'd be sitting and looking at the score sheet going, oh, I loved it. It was cool, but where do I, how do I score this on here? Like, really, I should just score the coffee, that routine that just talked about the coffee from that plot that tasted that way and kept it simple, right? Mm. And this this is probably fertile ground for, you know, another sort of amendment to the way Bruce competitions are scored, you know, that like... You know, I know we said before that people are bringing unsubstantiated claims, but this is kind of something that's proven. You know, what what Craig brought was you know proven in a more advanced industry and you know well applied as well. Uh, yeah, he was a- with deductive tasting of wine and applying it through a, matri- a tasting matrix. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I loved it. I I loved his routine. I was super excited about it because again, I when I as a competitor. I was always using the competitions to funnel something I was working on in coffee anyway. Like it's a really good platform to, to um, clarify your ideas. It's the same as teaching, right? You know, you know, you learn through teaching because when you have to explain something to someone else, you force yourself to formulate the idea clearly. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And um, I found the barista comps the same. I have to, I have to get this through from an idea into her coherent narrative in 15 minutes. Again, I love that process. Does the competition really reward that? Not really, but it is a great process. And I think with Craig's idea that, you know, you use the competition to fully formulate this flavor matrix for coffee that makes a ton of sense. But again, like if I'm the judge, like, have you done, have you done any judging? Have you? No, but I've been the calibration barista for judging. Yeah, uh, it's more. It's more that like if if you've ever done any judging, like 
There's those dogs. Yeah, man. But, yeah, we've got, basically we, we're getting all of the um, gravel delivered for the for the garden, so oh. they don't like the crane. Mm, fair enough. Um, the those score sheets, man. Like it's hard. Like I I like to think I'm a pretty capable human being. I mean, because I'm a sort of you know creative person, my energy jumps all over the place, and sometimes I lack a bit of focus, but. I'm sat there trying to judge with this. Mate, it's complicated. Like you're trying to look at the competitor, drink the drinks, scribble all over this score sheet. It's got all these different rules. It, it's, this is, it's hard being a judge. And then you come along with like Craig or me and we're, asked, we're making it even harder for you. We're coming along and going, you know, only have you got to do what you normally do, but we're going to flip the thing on you and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And you're like, Ugh. and that's why I think it, there should be none of that score sheet, right? Like, Imagine you're in a restaurant or go, gone to a talk. You don't want to be scribbling notes. I just want to enjoy what you're presenting to me. Like if, if you're if you're like whatever your routine's about, like with Craig, I'm just like, yeah, man, I just want to drink it and listen to the flavor notes and then just give one score per round. Like that, that's all it needs. Simplification, like, perhaps. 100%. Like those rules need simplifying uh, and the score sheet. You, you probably wouldn't even need any rules, right? Imagine if the score sheet was so simple, you wouldn't really need a rule. You'd need a rule for like, oh, I mean, I won't get onto that. I mean, the some of the rules that are there, I just think are never tested, right? Which is like, how do you know? I thought about this recently with the auditing thing. How do you know that the coffee the barista said is in the hopper is in the hopper? Mm. Well, yeah, there's there's no way I can tell. Yeah, like, uh, you know, and the same with the SIG drink ingredients, make sure you don't use any alcohol or this. There's these things that there's just a lot of trust there. There's a lot of trust, of course, um, which is which is good that we have a trust to a degree. But, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk to Craig about it. And um, I'm going to be interested to see what he thinks. I mean, for everyone who's heavily invested in competition, there's a lot of mixed emotion there because you've put years of your life into it. You've done well from it. And but there's bits that you struggle with and talking to other uh baristas like my chat with dale me and dale are going to do a debate if you need a moderator which, let I, me know yeah that mate that that could be really good we, we sort of promised he he said to me it can't be edited i'm like sure but we just need to try and keep it shorter um to do that but i think uh seeing both those sides is probably valuable um yeah i, I, I don't know like uh craig i craig i always understood it i think anyone who's been in coffee competitions for ages like dale gets it too dale was like there's no way you can be in coffee comps for years and not start to see a lot of the problems. And then you either decide that you're okay with that and that's cool. Or if you're me, <laughs> you decide you're not okay with it and maybe it could change a bit. I think um, taking all the people out of this for a minute, my question to you is, do you think without change in iteration, the coffee competitions will be as relevant to the industry? It's, for me, like it's it's hard to tell because we I feel do, so disengaged from it right now because the competition hasn't been on for a little while with coronavirus and whatnot. But um, yeah, I think if it stays the same, it'll get boring. You know, without change, without um, you know, everything has to evolve to get better. Um, and I think you know nothing is exempt from that sort of you know outlook. And and as, so long as we are sort of you know, we're real, we're real with ourselves in the sense that we really actually embrace the change, make it good. And, you know, some people might have to accept some hurt, but ultimately we make it better because that's, because, you know, you can't do everything right a hundred percent of the time. We all, we all make mistakes. I'm not saying anyone's made a mistake here, but it's like, I think a really 
you know, why why I got you out of the podcast is, is hey, let's have this discussion. We could make this better. Totally agree, yeah. I completely agree. And I think it's if we're changing it and we're going through it's the process is as valuable as the the exact result, right? Mm. And um, yeah, I, I agree. You're not going to get it perfect. And I even said to a friend of mine who said, someone reached out to me and said, hey, Max, do you want to just start your own comp? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I feel like I already do too much, right? Yeah, um, you're a very busy guy. But be, how would you, you know, and also that's the other thing. How do you compete with that structure? How do you run 60 competitions anyway? But my point being was um, I said to them, I said, you know, rather than coming up with a whole new comp and releasing it to the world, let's just play with it. Like, like the iteration piece, let's, my idea of like having no deliberation, having judges speak, let's, let's create, I don't know, we'd get a hundred people in a room and you take a few barista competitors and let's just do that uh, and see if it works. Right. Like it's very easy to sit here and to critique the existing structure and talk about what can change. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll make changes or there will be changes that made that won't be, fair, be as good. Right? To be fair, they've made a few little tweaks over the years. Like, like you said about technical judges and, like, you know, shifting of tables and stuff like that. You can get a bit more creative. John Gordon uh, has got some, you know, ideas about what you could do with grinders. But I know that's sort of, you know, there's sponsorships and stuff that might prevent that being able to happen. But, like, there's all sorts of little things. Like- they, make, they make small changes. They definitely make small changes. I think that's my gripe is I feel like the small changes are – Hey, look, we're listening. We're making changes, mm. and they're not the foundational ones. Um, especially, especially when the people involved recognise those foundational things are a challenge. I think they definitely struggle with agreement on what to change it to. So, uh, I think you need a structure to make decisions. Right, which is you have an idea, I have an idea, Agnieszka has an idea, John Gordon has an idea. Like, ha- what's the funnel to take these ideas and turn them into change? in a way that we feel is right for the community. Hey, I'm going, to propose that's the- I'm going to propose something here. Perhaps we have a summit of, you know, competitors, judges, uh, or, you know, people who are interested, sponsors, whatever. Have a summit. Hash out some good ideas. Make it public. You know, let's, like, get, get, get people involved in the process as well, you know. Could that be a good idea? You know, just bringing, yeah, 100%. All, these, bringing all these brilliant minds together and making a better product? Yeah, I think the, the key thing is um, put 10 creative people in the room and yeah, have 10 ideas. And how do you, how, the key thing there will be a mechanism or the right leadership to, to make sure that, like if I said to you, hey, there's this idea or this idea and you pick one, that's a very different conversation to me saying, hey man, there's a blank page, do what you want. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the problems with the comp when I was on the board is it was too like, let's talk right from the beginning. If you started the comp tomorrow, what would it be? And I'm like, let's be real, right? We're not going to start this comp from scratch. We're going to evolve what we have. So let's let's not talk about how it could look completely different. Let's talk about how it could be a better version of what it is today. And and that's totally reasonable in, in my opinion. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that let's see. Let's see what happens. I think obviously with COVID and everything, we get this WBC out of the way and um, – I don't know. I mean, I'll be interested. I mean, I had a chat with Stephen Morrissey, who I was on that board with that I left. Um, I'm going to pick up and chat to him again about it. Um, he <laughs> he joked to me and said he had all these messages from people going like, look at this fucking video from Maxwell. <laughs> yes, Max, yeah. Maxwell, the pompous bastard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who the fuck does he think he is? Yeah. I mean, just back to your question when you said, when you were saying about wrapping this up and saying, you know, that 
thanks to me for being honest. You know, I may, you know, by the time I stand on stage and I, you know, I, I've worked a lot on public speaking and my ability to convey an idea and say it clearly and with confidence. I, I was nervous about posting that video, like super nervous about it. Yeah, right? well, so I, mean, I, I could get blowback for this podcast as well, and you know, but sometimes you just got to do it, Maxwell. Yeah, you do. But what I would say is refreshing for me is like um, you don't want everyone. You don't want an echo chamber. You don't want everyone to agree with you. That's not valuable either. Which which hasn't happened. But what I would say that's been really positive about this is that people are in favor of having the conversation and, and being critical so i think the the coffee community um yeah there's uh it's, it's super positive these conversations that we're having about difficult topics and your economic point is the same point which is we've got to have these conversations more and be more urgent with them because uh you know to, to have a the industry be everything it can be we, we've got to move faster and be a bit more critical yeah, and I've got a whole podcast coming up on that, which uh, everyone listening can look forward to. But Maxwell, we will wrap it up here. You've been such a good guest again. Thank you so much. And yeah, it's been an honor to have you on the Sub-Zero podcast. My pleasure. I hope to see you again in Melbourne sometime oh, soon. Oh, mate, you will. But as always, everyone, please stay cool. Stay cool.